0: If you have your Bible and wish to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll pick up where we left off last time we were together, and we were talking about and preaching on the subject of the downside of salvation. We believe there is a downside, and I believe the Bible teaches a downside, and uh, uh, it comes from our springboard text, which was over in Luke chapter 19, you should recognize the story. Those first ten verses of Luke 19 is the story concerning Zacchaeus. And um, the Bible indicates that Zacchaeus was uh, looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as uh, we preached a few weeks ago, I believe that Zacchaeus was interested in seeing the Lord because um, Matthew in his gospel, whose name is Levi, had made a meal uh, had a feast as it were and he invited the publicans to uh, to that feast and i believe that zacchaeus was invited to that feast and did not go and then he heard that the lord jesus was going to pass through jericho and i believe that zacchaeus said hey i'm going to see this guy because i'm confident that the testimony of levi got around that is levi was a publican he was a he was a hated publican and what happened was, when he met the Lord, uh, he turned his life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. He followed Him and trusted Him. And I believe that word got to Zacchaeus. What in the world could change a publican's heart? What could change him? What could what could make Matthew leave such a lucrative job as a publican, who was like a gouging tax collector? And uh, how could we? How in the world could this change this guy's life? So when Christ was coming through Jericho. I believe that Zacchaeus wanted to see him. So when he sees him, he goes up and he climbs in a sycamore tree. We know that story well. And then he looks out over the crowd and all of a sudden there's a voice beneath the tree. And it said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must go to your house today and abide with you. And the Bible says Zacchaeus came down. And every Commentary I have in my office says that's the point of salvation. That's the point where he really did, one, listen to what he was told by the Lord, and two, responded to it. That basically is salvation. When you hear the word of God and you've been spoken to by the Lord, convicted of your sin, and you come to that point where you see yourself as God sees you, there's a surrender in that and there's a humility in that. I call it the downside of salvation. I also say to you, there are some people who profess to know Christ who never came down. Uh, They've never seen themselves the way the Bible describes them as being. And until you see yourself the way God sees you, you'll never see the Lord for who he is. And that's the difference. And that's why people sort of make a flurry of religious activity, and it's like a puff of smoke on a windy day. It sort of blows up, and then it blows away. And they go back to their old ways because they never did realize what they really were and what he really did to save them and change their life. So in context of that, we've uh, pointed out to you what the Bible says about what you were and I was when the Lord found us. So here in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we'll just review quickly. And by the way, if you had the daily journal at your house, uh, the the um, cartoon on the editorial page on Saturday Uh, the 29th, um, the age of 30, so yesterday, um, it was a simple cartoon, but it hit the point about our government. It said it was a man and a woman sitting at a table, and the woman uh, and the man, it was a kitchen table, and uh, the woman was reading the newspaper, and the husband was sitting across reading something, and the wife said to the husband, she said, and I quote, I fail to see the downside of government shutdown.'" I think that's smart. (laughs) It was Will Rogers who said, every day that the legislature is in session, your freedoms are in jeopardy. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, The best thing for us, for government, would be that it stopped for a few years, you know, and we just sort of ever do what you got to do. But the fact of the matter is this one caught the idea when it had the word downside the downside. This woman says, I don't see the downside. The truth is, there's a lot of people who don't see the downside of salvation, and because they don't, they have never really come to a point of repentance. I want to show you from Ephesians chapter 2, and it's divided very carefully. Into uh, several sections. So let me just review them, what we've covered already. For instance, chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1, and uh, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus of the believers there, he says, And you hath he quickened, that means uh, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, and that is uh, the world that you live in, with its philosophies and its ideologies that are so contrary to what the Bible teaches and so contrary to who and what God is all about. But that's the way we walked. That was, sort of, so to speak, the map that we followed. According to the prince of the power of the air. That is, not only did we walk according to the course of this world, we also walked in accordance to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil. And we don't like to think about that, and we don't like to tell a sinner that you are of your father the devil. But the best example we have in Scripture is when the Lord himself turned to these fellows and said, You folks are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. And that's really what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 is saying. When you were not saved, you would do whatever the devil told you to do, and you can't buck that. You can't say, Oh, no, I wouldn't do it. I, 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 no. You did. That's what you did. You loved your sin, you enjoyed your sin, and only and only then did when the Holy Spirit spoke, convicted you of it, did you see yourself as a sinner and turn from it in repentance and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you did, then you know the pit from which you were hewn. You know the dirt and the mud and the slop and the slime that you were in as a sinner. And you say, wait, 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 just a minute, Pastor. You're getting a little rough. I did not do any of those things. I didn't smoke, drink, or, or chew, and I didn't run with any who do. That makes you clean, huh? Well, let me tell you about the other things. There's this thing of pride. There's this thing of lying, cheating. Crookedness, scandalization, all the kinds of things that the Bible and the New Testament, and especially the Apostle Paul, words that he uses that would describe us of things that nobody in the world would know we did but God. And that's what he's talking about, in the that you walked according to the course of this world, and you also walked according to the prince of the power of the air. He manipulated you. And it said, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, even your own spirit worked against you, showed you that you did whatever your spirit prompted you to do, and much of that was not good. So the fact of the matter, verse number 2 describes it, and he says in verse 3, Among whom also we all had our conversation, that is, lifestyle, in time past, in the lust of our flesh, the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. In other words, uh, you did your own thing, and you didn't care who didn't like it. You were self-centered, selfish, ungodly, wicked, and absolutely corrupt. The Bible often uses the kind of language defiled, and it means you were ruined from what you were intended and purposed to do. It's the same thing as the milk in your refrigerator when it stays too long. It's the word spoiled. It means the same thing. It missed its purpose. And as long as you were in sin, you missed your purpose. God had a purpose purpose and plan for your life, and you missed it. Why? Because of your sinfulness and your enjoyment in that. So the first three verses just describe the kind of people that God saved. Then look down to verse number 4, and this is the power by which uh, the Lord does the saving. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us. And by the way, uh, Romans 5.8, but God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the good news is he didn't wait till you got better and then saved you, he spoke to you, convicted you, and drew you out of your sin, and saved you, and set you on a solid rock, and minister to you to establish you as a born-again believer. Another thing in verse number 5, <clears throat> notice if you would in verse number 5 and verse number 6 going together, the Bible says, And hath raised us up, this is the position of those who have been saved. And he hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that um, in verse 5, even when we were dead in sins hath he quickened us together with Christ and by grace you receive. And he raised us up. That's the point that I emphasize that you'll find again and again. You see, the downside of salvation is you have to see yourself as down and out. You know, we used to talk about uh, fellows in uh, I was a privilege to speak at the mission a few times. And then uh, uh, when uh, Judy and Dan's father was at the jail in Marion County for, I don't know, 38 years or maybe, something like that, uh, he invited me to go down, and when I'd come over from uh, Ohio when we were pastoring there, uh, I would preach for him. And what was amazing, we referred to those people in the jail as down and out. You know, they'd come to Indianapolis from all around, Chicago and Louisville and Cincinnati and some right there in Indianapolis. They'd get out uh, uh, on a spill, and they'd get drunk. And they'd do something, and they'd get thrown in jail. Well, they'd be there the next morning, Sunday morning, Mr. Carter and these other men who would go in there to minister, and then we'd get to preach to them. And what would be happening, and happened frequently would, would be somebody say, Now, you, you guys are just down and out. And, and we, it was such a sense of pity for them. And we should have been that. I can remember one occasion in, uh, being there, and there was a man from Chicago who was a lawyer, And this lawyer had come to Indianapolis, and he was with some friends, and he got a little robust, he got drunk, and he got thrown in the slammer. And I remember the context that uh, that morning, that morning Brother Carter spoke. I I was there, but I didn't speak that morning. I remember the occasion when this man made a profession of faith. And he got down on his knees right at the front end of that uh, jail and Mr. Carter would invite them to get off their bunks and come down to the front and kneel right in front of the jail cell as it separated us. This man got on his knees and and prayed the sinner's prayer, told the Lord he was a sinner. And I wish you could have heard what he said. I wish you could have listened to how much he perceived of what the Bible says he was. And yet he was a Chicago lawyer. In the sight of the world, everybody would look at this guy and say, hey, this guy is uh, hey, he's up here. He's, uh, he's way up here. May I say to you, when he got saved, he got way down there. Way down there. And he really saw himself as a sinner. Somebody who really needed to repent of his sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And I heard him pray that prayer, and I saw the Lord raise him up. And that's exactly what Paul writes about this as a position in verse number 6. And he says, hath raised us up together. You see, if you're not down, you can't be raised up. And until somebody sees themselves and it's described by the Bible, not by their opinion and not by our society, because our society won't let anybody think poorly of themselves. Isn't that amazing? And God says, I can't think Rightly toward you until you do. But our society wants to speak well of every man. I mean, let's don't call a man a drunk. Let's just call him a little bit... Let's say he overdid it, you know. We change so many words, you know. They're not dead. They're deceased. They're not mean. They're just rambunctious. Now look, you can change all the language in the world, and you can... uh, You can make everything look better, but God sees the heart. And when God looks down, he wants a man to say, I see my heart. I see what I am. I know what I am, and I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. Have mercy on me and save me for your own sake. And that's when a man, woman, boy, or girl gets real salvation as long as they see themselves as up and respectable and honorable and noble and important, you won't see salvation. Because just like Zacchaeus, you've got to get down. And there's no surprise in the Scripture about the number of times the Bible talks about people falling down when they either saw an angel or saw the Lord or heard God speak. They got down. You don't stand up in God's presence and you don't you know, tell God how good you are and how smart you are and how wise you are and how, how much he'll be valued by what you contribute to him. You just remind yourself, you can't contribute to measurement of God one iota, not a bit. Also important here is not only what he says in 5 and 6, but look what he does say in verse number 7. It says the purpose for which God saved us. He says, that in the ages to come, he, not us, he might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward Himself. So he says, no, it said toward us. It gives Him the privilege of boasting about the salvation that He's brought to us when we find ourselves down and He raises us up in salvation and sets us on a solid rock. Then it becomes a matter that in the ages to come, it gives Him the privilege i speaking of, to boast about what he did to save you and me. You see, if you really get saved, you give God a cause to boast. And that's what the verse is saying. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he, that's the Lord, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In effect, we're a, a trophy of his. Uh, we didn't do anything to save ourselves. We were down and out. And in chapter two, verse one, two, and three tells us how bad it was. And He saved us. So in the ages to come, it's His privilege to brag about it. To tell about people, hey, here, here, here's what I did for these people, and tell the father, this is one of mine. I saved this person, this man, this woman, this boy, this girl. This is the position to which we're raised, and this is the purpose for which. We have been saved. Note also, in verse number 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved. This is the plan by which God saves us. It is by grace that you're saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we know for sure and understand fully that everything about salvation is of the Lord. Grace is the source in this passage. Faith is the means, and salvation is the result. Now, we got all that distance the last time we were together, and then we come to verse 10, and uh, this is an important verse because verse 10, uh, talking about these people uh, who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Uh, listen carefully to this, and it is is important. A salvation that does not produce good works is just as contrary to the Word of God as a salvation that's produced by works. Let me read it to you again. A salvation that does not produce good works is just as contrary to the Word of God as a salvation that is said to produce good works is. And I say to you that if we don't produce good works, then we're no different than the guy over here who says you can be saved by good works. That's wrong. But it's just as wrong to say you can be saved and not do them. Because this verse says, verse number 10, For we are his workmanship, all of him. And verse 10 continues by saying, Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's why we were saved. We were saved to bring glory to God, and we do that by working for him, serving him. We're his workmanship. He created us. He saved us. He's changed us. And his purpose was is to make us to be servants who are productive and profitable and fruitful for his glory. So the fact is that uh, you and I are, as believers, supposed to be people who produce good works. And that's his plan, and that's what his intent was. Back, uh, uh, back to a passage of Scripture, when we talked about Zacchaeus coming down, and we've discussed that before, that that phrase brings on the thoughts about Genesis chapter 3. Every believer, every believer, uh, no exception, every believer who ha- has uh, been saved by the grace of God, which makes him a believer, every believer, therefore, ought to understand fully, completely, and totally as possible The story in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall or downfall of man. If you don't understand Genesis chapter 3, you'd be casting question on whether or not you understand why you need to be saved in the first place. And yet there are people who don't understand Genesis chapter 3. So they look at it and just think of it as a historical account of a man and his wife and a woman got some bad advice and and picked up a apple off of a tree and ate it and turned to her husband, let him eat it, and, and no big deal. Uh, but it was a big deal. It changed everything. And after that, every person born on planet Earth would be classified as a sinner, whether they realized it or not. So tonight, Franklin, Indiana, there are people walking the streets and being in the restaurants downtown and in the shopping center, the Walmart, and everywhere else around here who have no clue that if they die where they are, when they are, and as they are, they'll go to hell itself. They have no perception of that. They think what the world has begun to teach and teach faithfully, everybody is going to heaven when they die. And so they live in that fantasy land. They have no clue about Genesis chapter 3 and how it really sailed and signed the death warrant for every human being. So I say to you that understanding the downside of salvation is a major part of it. Here's a, another point. Let me make uh, a few more before we get out of here. Look, if you would, from where you are in Ephesians, look back to the book of Luke, and it's the gospel of Luke, but go this time to chapter number 14 Luke chapter 14 look at verse number 11 John or Luke chapter 14 and in verse number 11 there the bible says Luke chapter 14:11 for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted and then skip over to chapter 18 in the same book Luke 18 verse 14 18 Fourteen, The Bible says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And uh, that story in uh, Luke 18 is about the publican. A publican, you know, the low-down, sorry, good-for-nothing, hated um, publicans. And don't forget how bad they were. Uh, Don't forget that they could not even go into the synagogue. Don't forget that the synagogue wouldn't even accept an offering from a publican. Don't forget that the Jews hated the publicans as much as they hated anything. And don't forget that this publican, in chapter number 18 and verse number 14, it simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God changed his life. What's important about that is that that other verse we read chapter 14 of Luke in verse 11 is the same essence of the verse of verse 14 where it says everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased and uh, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted it's attached to salvation it's a story about salvation you let a guy, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl come and, and project themselves as being important and someone who's being, uh, uh, what we might say, noble and, uh, and, and uh, elitist. The Bible is saying that person is not going to get the first base regarding salvation. The person who will be exalted in exaltation in this case is not arrogance. It is a place of put, putting a person or placing a person in a prescribed position. And that's the position we get to take in Christ when we really see ourselves as lost sinners. So this publican saw himself as a lost sinner, didn't even have enough of the um, whatever it takes to um, to lift his head. The Bible said his head fell and he, he smote his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord speaks and says, this guy went down to his house justified. The other guy didn't. And the other guy was religious. This was a low-down publican. This guy was a scum of the earth, and yet the Lord saved him. And the Lord pronounces and simply says, Anybody who exalts himself and does not think that he needs a Savior will be debased. He will be going back the same way he came, with nothing. But the guy who humbles himself, the woman who humbles herself, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake, that person will go down to his house justified. The point is, the standard that's set is a non-negotiable. It's not something that we can get God to be variable on. It's a matter that this is the only basis whereby God saves people. The key phrase in this whole thing is humble himself. It's something we can do to ourselves. It's a, a realization that every person needs to have it and uh, ought to show it. I, uh, I picked up a, a magazine the other day and uh, come to my office, and it's uh, by a Baptist pastor. It's by uh, Pastor Brian Hedge. <clears throat> he is the pastor of the uh, Fulkerson Park Baptist Church in Niles, Michigan. He's got a great article and uh, and uh, good enough that the Lord ministered to me with it, and, and I hope he'll minister to you. Just let me share a few things he said. First off, he said, and this is to cultivate humility in your life. If you've already been saved, and I trust you have, uh, then I, I hope that you'll uh, you'll cultivate what it was that brought you to faith in Christ. Now, remember, the guy that exalts himself is debased. I mean, he is, he's pushed further down. But the person who humbles himself before the Lord and confesses he's a sinner, the Lord exalts him. The Lord places him in a strategic position, and that's in Christ. So the point is, the way you got saved is the way you ought to stay saved. Now, you can't lose it, and that's not what I'm saying, but you ought to stay that way. You ought not get to a point because you've been saved and you know a little bit of the Bible and you understand a lot of truth that you get a little arrogant, you get a little cocky. You ought to stay the way you got in. And that is you humbled yourself to get in, you ought to humble yourself to stay there. This article encourages that, and he called Cultivating Humility. The first thing he says in order to do that, he says, is to know the greatness of your sin and the greatness of your God. That's good. Know the greatness of your sin. And if you say to yourself after hearing that statement, "Uh, I was a pretty good person, then you need to go back and do some work. You need to go through the New Testament, and you need to pick out every word that references how bad people were. I'll give you a cue. We were in the Sunday school class this morning and uh, here in the Grace Bible, and uh, I was off on the subject of uh, the mind. And uh, we were talking about uh, so much of the Bible deals with the mind, and the issue of getting it into your mind is eventually getting it into your heart. And it's the verse of Scripture. There's a verse we read this morning. You know, as, as face reflects itself in water, when you look into it, you see your face. Heart reflects heart. That's to say, you want to know about a man, you just let your, you just get to know his heart. And his heart will reveal to you what the man really is. You, uh, you can only hide so much so long from people. They'll catch on. And they'll see what you're really made of. What's most of your conversations about? What's your greatest subject? What's the love of your life? What's it all about? What do you talk about the most? What do you do the most? That'll tell you about a person's heart. And the fact of the matter is that uh, this business of uh, understanding uh, what the Bible teaches, the one thing that's corrupt about all of us when we came into this world was our minds. You want to do a study, you just get your concordance, and you just start writing down all the verses that have to do with your mind because what happened in the Garden of Eden, what happened when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, one of the first things that happened was the mind went south. I mean, it corrupted their minds. In fact, the New Testament says they were corrupted. And you corrupt the mind, then you've corrected everything about it because everything you do comes from your mind. There's nothing you can do that you don't think about or your brain does not think for you. Uh, You say, you know, well, I'm breathing. That's right. And your brain is telling your body when to breathe. Your brain is telling your heart when to beat. Your brain is telling your, your entire system is under its control. And everything that your body does, your brain is involved in it. And we think of the brain as where our minds are. That's where we think. And that's true. So the Bible says you were corrupt in your mind from the moment you were born. That's why babies cry and scream and fuss and do all kinds of stuff when everything's fine. They just want you to know that they can do what they want to do. Rebels at heart. And the fact of the matter is, they can't help it. Why? Because that's what their brain says. Their minds say that. And we were corrupted from the get-go. And what happens then, if you think you're a good person, you just start with a study of the Scriptures about your mind, how you were born with a corrupt mind, a defiled mind, a debased mind, and then just recognize everything you did comes from that mind. Everything came from it. That's why a guy can think that he can go out and get drunk and feel good about it and go to bed and get up the next day, maybe sicker than a dog, and stumbles around, can't think what happened, doesn't remember a thing, but he thinks he had a good time. Why? Because he's been deceived by his brain. His brain deceives him. And I said it this morning, and I repeat it. Anybody who's deceived will eventually disobey. Deception leads, leads to disobedience. Always has and always will. And our brains deceive us, trick us. That's why people can go into a desert thirsty and look out there and see a big lake of water. They call it a mirage. It's the brain saying, that's what you want, that's what I'm going to show you. There was a program on television not long ago, and I don't remember, um, I think it was called The Brain Game. If anybody saw it, then you might understand it. It had some unbelievable things on it. And if you'd see it, you'd swear it couldn't have happened. What he was doing is showing you that your brain can trick you more times than you think. I mean, it can deceive you. You can swear that there are four blocks on this stage or four blocks on this stable. And then they step back, and you realize there are not four. There's two. How did you see four? And they show you how you see four. They show you how you'll see things that you never dreamed of. You think you see them, and because you're thinking that way, they tell you what you're seeing. You see it. Well, the devil wants you to see something that's not real. He tells you it's real, and we believe him. Why? Because our brains are corrupted. And that's why the Bible comes back with so much and says so often, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus the Lord. When you come to faith in Christ, the Bible talks about changing your thinking. You know, um, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Why do we do that? Why do we need a renewed mind? Because it was so corrupted before, and it has to be altered and changed so we can live a successful, victorious Christian life. So the fact of the matter is, this guy's right on track with saying, you need to know the greatness of your sin and the greatness of your God in order to continue the journey to be humble. He says there are two things we need to humble us. First, let us consider God in his greatness, his glory, his holiness, his power, his majesty, and his authority. And then let us consider ourselves in our mean, abject, and sinful condition. True humility results from seeing the truth about God and about ourselves. And don't forget what you see. So once you see it, don't forget it. And live and abide by Number two, he says, and we're not going to get all of these. Secondly, he says, learn to give up self-defense. Self-defense. He says, to be humble, you must learn to die to what Augustine called the lust of vindicating ourselves. There's a balance here. There is a time when you need to defend your integrity. When the loss of it will ruin your witness or mar the testimony of Christ. But most of the time, we spend way too much time trying to justify the actions we took. And that is not being humble. Number three, be harsh on yourself rather than others. He says, can we with justice feel contempt for others and dwell on their faults when we're full of them ourselves? Our strong feelings about the faults of other people and itself a great fault. Be suspicious of yourself if you get overly exercised about someone else's sin. Chances are you have a log in your own eye while you may be fretting about a splinter and the other guy's eye. Here's a good test. Is this a matter of big enough deal that you will lovingly discuss it with the person you're concerned about? If it isn't, then it certainly isn't a big enough deal to discuss it with anybody else. It ought to die with you. Be harsh on yourself rather than on others. Number four, never consider yourself humble. Don't go around telling anybody. Don't become the Uriah Heep from the old classic novel who was always asserting his own humility. And don't be like the church members who were awarded a medal for humility, but then had it taken away when they wore the button. I like that. If you're given a button for humility and you wear it and it gets taken away, well, you get the idea. Don't don't wear the button. Don't say the word. A humble person will never presume to tell anybody else that he is humble because it doesn't know that. Humble people don't necessarily know they're humble. They ought to be pursuing it, and they ought to cultivate it, but it's not one of those things you arrive at one day and say, Oh, I am humble. That's not how it works. Humility is a thing that sort of climbs up on you for all the bending and bowing of your heart to the will of the Father and the knowing of His Word and the Spirit's work in your heart. Number five, he says, practice humility in the little things you do. Andrew Murray wrote this. He said the Insignificance of daily life are the test of eternity because they prove what spirit really possesses us. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. To know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in the common course of a daily life. What does this mean practically? Give in to your mate the next time the two of you disagree. Don't get angry the next time someone cuts you off in traffic. Be eager to take the blame for mistakes. Quickly seek reconciliation with other people when there's an offense given. And number six, forget yourself. This is really what you should be aiming at, fight for humility, to be really unconscious of yourself at all. This is especially relevant when it comes to your motives. Do you do the things you do for the Lord or for the applause of men? C.S. Lewis said that the relationship between self-regard and the need for approval of others is like an itch, an itch that needs to be scratched. As long as we have the itch of self-regard, we shall want the pleasure of self-approval. But the happiness And the happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves and have neither but have everything else instead that's important. And that's the smile of God. This is subtle, it's easy, and it's tempting to want the approval and the compliments of other people as you cook nice at meal and pray a nice prayer, preach a great sermon, sacrifice a great gift. But that's an unhealthy itch that wants to be scratched. It would be better not to have the itch at all. And for that to happen, you have to forget self. And number seven, delight in the Lord, not in accomplishments. In Jeremiah, it says, This says, The Lord let, the, let not the wise men boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty men boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Note the three things that men tend to glory in there's wisdom, there's might, and there's riches. But God says we should glory in understanding and knowing God, not in our own human distinction and accomplishments. One of the most important keys to humility is a sight of the satisfying God who is indefinitely and infinitely greater than we are. And he's aware of all we do for him. And finally, the last one. Number eight, meditate on the gospel. When Paul wanted to cultivate humility in the members of a local church, he took them straight to the gospel. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 Verses 5 through 11 is one of the most profound meditations on the gospel in all of the scripture. As Paul describes the humility of Jesus Christ in his incarnation, his obedience, and his death. When Jesus taught his disciples servanthood, he pointed them to his own vocation as a servant, both their highest example and the deepest motive of serving others. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Or even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark ten forty three forty five. Our humility is the fruit of and a response to the humility of Christ himself. And the only way we'll be freed from the pride of boasting in ourselves is if we find more worthy objects in which we boast. And that is why the wisdom of Scripture never simply says, do not boast, but be humble. Instead, it directs us to boast in the Lord and boast in the cross. Glory in the cross, as Paul said. And as Paul wrote the Galatians in chapter 6, far be it from me, boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Elizabeth Clefane's wrote the song, I take, O cross thy shadow, for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of your face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. This guy's got a good handle on this. I say to you that uh, the truth is that uh, you can't just tip your hat to Jesus Christ. You must bow your knee. And that happens in the matter of salvation, and it matters in the thing of living the successful Christian life. It's not just to be someone who uh, pumps himself up with what he knows, what he's said, what he's read, what he's taught. And what he comes out to project on somebody else is to be humble about it. And to be as humble in the present life as a believer as you were when you came by faith to know Christ. If that happens, you're a usable servant. If not, you've probably got some work to do. So I say to you this evening, I hope that your heart will be open to this. We'll finish up the next time we're together. But I hope, first of all, you know Christ. I hope you understand uh, the rock from which you've been hewn, and I hope you understand how far down you were when he raised you up. And for him to raise you up, you have to be down. He doesn't just raise people who are already doing quite well. And that's why many people don't come to faith in Christ. They think they're doing quite well. Hey, I don't need Christ. I've got a good job, got a good retirement. Everything's just going wonderful. I, I really don't need anything. They don't recognize that there's something inside of them that is not going to be taken care of by money or by uh, prestige or position or career or any of those things. It's something that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cover and cleanse. So this evening, I hope you know Christ, but if you don't, you can come to know him right here, right now. If you know him, I trust that you'll stay humbled just the way you came to know him. If you came humble, you came the right way. You came just like the publican. and, And by the way, he's no worse off than you are. I don't care how good you were and how sorry he was. We're all in the same boat before Christ. We're all sinners, and we need a Savior. And I hope this week that you'll go tell someone that and share it in a compassionate heart and a humble spirit to let them know that's exactly how you had to come, and that's exactly how they'll have to come. You do not come walking tall, To the cross of Christ, you come on your knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Christ's sake. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the the, uh, attitude that the Scriptures take as our world about us seems to clamor to find a new way to brag on someone to make them better than they are. And I pray that you'll help us who are Bible believing people to never concede nor compromise to the position. Help us, Father, to be faithful to the text of the Word. Help us to take people to the passages of Scripture, even as we've taken them this evening to the church family. And I pray you'll help us to know these passages and be able to know them well enough that we can share them with folks and they themselves can see that we were born sinners. And I mean sinners indeed. There was nothing about us that had recommendation to us, to you, And, Father, I pray this evening that we might really recognize and understand that fully and completely. And I trust that it will be a matter for all of us here, even who have been saved by the grace of God and indeed did come in a humble way. I pray that we might remain humble and we might cultivate a humility about us and our whole spirit might be different as we come in touch with others about us who need to know Christ, that we would remind them that uh, we had to come the same way and we had to bow to the same depth. And we had to get down in order to get up and have Christ raise us up by His mercy and grace. So I pray tonight you'll help us to see the downside of salvation and help us, Father, not to compromise it in our current culture of the church and Christianity. I pray that you'll help us to stay steadfast, stand hard and ardent and tough and, and deliberate and diligently upon what the Bible says, and not compromise a single word. So I pray you'll help us to be faithful to you and to the Word, help us to bear the truth to those who will hear, and Father, I pray you'll have mercy upon them as you did on the publican in Luke, and I pray you'll save them for Christ's sake. Now speak to our hearts here as we get ready to leave this service, and Father, if there's someone here who does not know Christ and does not see themselves, as is recorded here in Ephesians 2, I pray that you'll speak and convict and draw them, by your spirit to yourself. And I pray for the believers here that you'll help them to stay in a humble mode, uh, the same mode in which they came to faith in Christ. They'll remain that way. Even as they read the word on a daily basis, even as they pray father, even as they attend church, as they worship, as they witness, I pray there'll be this keen sense of humility about them and people about them will recognize it. And may we know that uh, we're your followers by the expression of humility that shows be about us. Bless the word, and may it bring forth fruit to your glory in Christ's name.